was to be the most remarkable wedding in all of human history. Not remarkable because of the beauty of the bride soon to walk the aisle, but because of her shallowness. She hardly knew the man she was about to marry. What do you mean, Joel? It was as if the bride had been wearing a veil over her eyes from the moment the groom first walked into her life. After a lengthy courtship, she still didn't understand very much about her future husband, knew so little about his heart and the tremendous burden that he carried for her. Everyone who witnessed the groom's courtship could see it. He had come, he had pursued her, he had wooed her, he had loved her unlike any man had ever done. But when he explained who he was and the lengths he was going to go to to show and prove his love, Her eyes glazed over as though she were unwilling to know him. And neither did she want to be known. He would gently probe into her past, her hurts, her fears. He wanted to share her hurts. He wanted to know her fears so that he could help, so that he could show her that he loved her despite it all. And she hated it. You see, she only wanted love on the most superficial level. She dialed herself all up to cover over her scars, to cover her sadness, to hide her fears. She acted sure that she could fool him and everyone else who was watching with just how wonderful she was. She postured herself as though she was just a prize catch. She had so much to offer. Because she believed true intimacy was not knowing one another well at all. What was so ironic was that he already knew. He knew her better than she knew herself. He knew about her rated R past, yet he valiantly pursued her all the same. What kind of wedding is this? Friends, there's a lesson for us here. This groom, he loves her not because of who she is, but because of who he is. His affection, his continuing pursuit of his shallow bride-to-be demonstrates the wonder of his heart as that wedding day draws near. More, he was about to endure the greatest suffering that anyone ever has in order to make that bride his. And all of us here are left to ask, why would he go through all this? Was this if he knew something that no one else did, least of all her? But you can't help but think he's up to something marvelously good for her. Are you ready for the gospel? Yes. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, will you open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word? Will you open our ears that we might hear the voice of our Lord Jesus? And we open our hearts that we might find them strangely warm today. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We're turning to the Gospel of Luke. We're finishing Luke today, chapter 18. Finishing Luke 18, I'm going to read verses 31 through 43. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. you also find it printed on your bulletin on page 5. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31. 
And taking the twelve, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well, or could be translated, your faith has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So good morning. Any of you joining us online? Any of you just joined us in the last few minutes? I'm Joel. And I'm glad to be back with you after a couple of weeks of vacation. Some of you have noticed my new glasses. My wife has been telling me that I need new glasses. She's been telling this for quite a while. But I kept it pretty low on my priorities list, pretending that I was seeing just fine. When I took my eye test and handed my old glasses to my eye doctor, he assured me I was not. My vision is much worse than I thought. I am now a member of the Bifocal Club. Folks needing double help to see well. And when I got my new glasses, I was amazed at how much better I could see. I was busy calling out distant signs on the road and bragging to my wife about my new supervision. I had no idea how bad my vision was until I put these glasses on. Helen Keller, the blind author and speaker, once said, The only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. Having sight but no vision. Wonderfully, God here at the end of Luke 18 has given us an eye exam so that we can all check our vision today. Let me ask you, how well are you seeing Jesus? How well are you seeing Jesus? How well are you seeing the things that he has done for you? Let me ask you, does your life reveal to a watching world, to others, to your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers? Does your life reveal that you are fully known and greatly loved and you know Jesus came to win you to be his bride? I can safely say that not a single one of us have walked through those doors with 2020 vision. Jesus and the good news of the gospel, what he has done for us, is at best blurry for you right now. At worst, you're entirely blind. 
and you can't see him at all. When I'm talking about his spiritual blindness, which actually our Bible has a whole lot to say about. If you're exploring Christianity, I'm so glad you're here. God is up to something in your life. I pray that God will send the spirit of his son so that you might be able to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ who came to seek and save souls who are all in line in a dying world waiting to perish. All of us are. The reason folks are lost is 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, because the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. Notice the problem is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's that apart from God's help, we are totally blind. John Calvin says, well, the blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clarity of the gospel. The sun is no less bright because blind men do not perceive its light. The reason unbelievers don't believe is because they're spiritually blind. But here in Luke 18, we also see believers are in danger of becoming spiritually blind. We're in danger of spiritual blindness as well. How so, Joel? Well, let's see how we find ourselves in Luke 18. Verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This first scene, Jesus is basically saying, Huddle up, calling the twelve around him. Jesus says to them, See, we're heading to Jerusalem. Now, this is no surprise to the twelve. They all know we've been going to Jerusalem. Since chapter 9, Jesus said, we're heading to Jerusalem. But Jesus, what he's doing is he's reminding them of the game plan. What's going to happen when they arrive in chapter 19 is when they arrive. They're almost there. This is kind of like what a coach would do in the locker room right before the championship game. The team's about to enter the stadium, but they need clarity. And they need those instructions one more time reinforced. But disciples, you know what they see? They see a military Messiah. Jesus, they see as a military Messiah entering Jerusalem, and they're wrong. They're blind. Back in chapter 9, Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He squared his jaw. He set his countenance, steeled it, because he had a date with destiny. What destiny was that? Everything written about the Son of Man and the Prophets. Jesus is referring to much of the Old Testament here, which his disciples knew very well. Now, if I was to pause the sermon for a minute and to walk around and ask each and every one of you, what was written about the Son of Man in the Old Testament? Some of you might decide, you know, it's a really good time for a bathroom break right now. Because the Old Testament is somewhat blurry for some of us, right? In fact, for all of us to some degree, right? Those 39 books... How well do we know them? But what Jesus is saying is as blurry for these disciples as it is for you and I. And preachers, modern preachers, are in good measure responsible for that. I remember a dear Christian woman I used to volunteer with in Elkhart. She came up and she asked me, do we need to read the Old Testament, Joel? She concluded they didn't really preach it or teach it very much at her church. And it's because the Old Testament was dark. It was bloody. It showed an angry God. Not like the New Testament where Jesus shows us a God of love. Now that's not true. It's the same God of love found in the Old Testament that you find in the New Testament. But in order to love us, 
God had to tell the truth on us. She concluded that they didn't preach it because that was evil, that was dark. But actually what God was doing and showing all that darkness was, well, he was being like a doctor. When you go into his office and he says, hey, you have cancer. You have a problem. The Old Testament, what it does is it reveals humanity is infected to its core by sin, by shame. It's dark because it reveals what, we, what Victor was teaching us about, total depravity. It's not that man is as bad off as he can be, but every part of our nature has been corrupted since we rebelled. But in the darkness of the Old Testament, it also reveals that God was preparing a cure, a promised Savior. What I am saying is that the whole Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus coming. That's actually what Luke is going to say, tell us in chapter 24. Jesus is saying this now to blind disciples. This scene right here is setting the plate for Luke 24 when Jesus is going to give the greatest expository sermon in the Old Testament to totally blind disciples. And in Luke's next book, Acts, what do you find these disciples now doing? They're saying, look at the Old Testament here. It's talking about Jesus. Look at the Old Testament here. They were pointing forward to Jesus again and again and again. St. Augustine once said, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. You see, the Old Testament is kind of like a dark room. But as you move through it, you keep bumping into furniture and you feel it here and there. The New Testament is like the lights being turned on and now you can see everything that God was arranging in the room. First time a preacher showed me Jesus in the Old Testament, it blew my mind. And now I'm finding Jesus everywhere in my Old Testament. I was reading it this morning and it's incredible when you know that he's there and you're looking for him. And I encourage you to read your Old Testament and to discover this for yourself. We're going to be starting a fellowship evening service. We're also going to be doing our Thursday study, resuming again. Let's learn about the Old Testament along with the New. Let me whet your appetite with a few Old Testament passages Jesus would be referring to. Psalm 22, it begins like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words sound familiar? Jesus was quoting this on the cross. It goes on to say, for dogs and company encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This was written maybe a thousand years before the Romans or crucifixion was ever established. Imagine being there at that scene and hearing Jesus quote this ancient psalm as the blood runs from his nail-pierced hands, as the Romans in front of them are busy casting lots for his garments. Why did he do this? Isaiah 53. A prophecy about this mysterious servant of the Lord. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was buying back his bride by paying for our sin. The Old Testament calls it adultery again and again, by the way. 
There's a story in the Old Testament about a, by a, about a prophet named Hosea, the book of Hosea. I encourage you, yes, to read the first three chapters, just those chapters, and you'll see this amazing story. God tells Hosea, his holy prophet, hey, Hosea, I want you to go marry this woman who's going to cheat on you. Hosea, he must have been thinking, what in the world, God? So Hosea marries Gomer, has kids with her. Seems like she has some kids not with him. And then she completely abandons Hosea. What happens to her? She ends up being used and abused by her other lovers. And eventually she's no longer valued by anyone. Chapter 3, you know where she is? Standing up naked on the auction block to be sold to whoever would give the most for her and she's not worth anything at this point. As she stands there in shame, she suddenly hears a familiar voice call out in the crowd. It's Hosea offering to buy back his cheating bride. Why did God tell Hosea to do this? Because God wanted to give a picture of the future bridegroom, our Lord Jesus, who would purchase his bride back from the slave market of sin. And how would he do that? Isaiah 50, look it up later, which speaks to this mysterious servant, the Lord again, who will give his back for the beating his face for disgrace and to be spit on. And look what Jesus says in the next verses, Luke 18, 32 and 33. Jesus says, For he, speaking of himself, will be delivered over the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus is saying, I have come to accomplish what Isaiah and all these other prophets predicted. Jesus is saying, this is the playbook, guys. So I don't want you to be surprised when we enter Jerusalem and you find yourself witnessing instead of this great, wonderful victory, a great tragedy, what it seems. When the cruelty that man is unable to leash is all unleashed upon my body. Don't be surprised and don't despair because after I die on the cross, I am going to rise from the dead on the third day. This is not the first time Jesus has told them this. I counted out seven times Jesus has told them this, three times in great detail. And by the way, they were with him for three years. How many times do you think Jesus has gone over the playbook? And look at verse 34. Look at verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden, veiled from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They didn't get it. They didn't get it at all. Not even a little bit. They're spiritually blind. Luke says that it was hidden from them. They had a veil over their eyes. Jesus had said this again and again for three years. Here we are. Jesus is days away from his death on the cross. He details the game plan one more time and they don't get it at all. Why don't they see? For the exact same reason some of us may not be seeing. We're not seeing too well. Here's your eye exam. Does it ever seem to you that the cross is foolish? <coughs> How is God hanging on wooden beams, dying? How is that good news? I think most of us here at times or all the time are perfect. We prefer the strength of men 
to the weakness of God. Let's be honest. We're all blind to its value to some degree. Even Peter rebuked Jesus the first time he told him about the cross. He says, hey, you've got to stop with all this nonsense about suffering and dying, Jesus. We're starting to get a big crowd, Jesus. We're going to lose numbers here. Preach a happy triumph. Yeah, a message of triumph. Our best life now. They will all flock to you, Jesus. And Jesus rebuked Peter. He said, there's no happy life. There's no triumph without the cross. Maybe you get that. Okay, the preacher must preach the cross week after week. And you've just kind of come to think to yourself, well, that's Jesus' thing. You know, he comes to get crucified. You go, Jesus. Yay. Not my thing, because I really don't think about it much during the rest of the week. I prefer to think positive thoughts. Positive thoughts. Oprah's got this great new saying, just came out a few months ago. Banish all forms of negative energy. Moving forward, you will see that the value you give yourself is the value the world reflects back to you. When you care about yourself enough to embrace change, you're on the path that will lead you to happiness. Dave's not buying it. Good for you, Dave. That's a dead end, friends. That is a dead end. And I grieve those who spout off these platitudes. As our world is crumbling, what's going on in Tijuana right now? Oprah and Pastor Joel, the other Joel, they've been preaching that path for decades now to millions of people. To what end? Is our culture any better? Are our families any better buying into this message? Banishing negative energy is the path of the blind. And I promise you it will not lead you to happiness. Do you see Jesus' different message here? Jesus says, I left heaven, I left heaven to receive every form of negative energy that could be embraced on earth. I came to be handed over to cruel men and to be cursed and to be shamed and to be spit on and to give my back to the whip until it's like hamburger and to be nailed to a cross and to be raised from the dead. The resurrection. That's the path of happiness. And every disciple of Jesus, they understand that we must take up the cross, our own cross, and follow Jesus for the joy set before us, just like it was before him. Friends, the gospel, it must be bad news before it can ever be good news. Bad news that our condition led Jesus to this bad news. It's our problem that Jesus suffered for. Why does Jesus suffer and get crucified? Not because we're so special and so full of merit, but because we're so sinful and in need of mercy. Have you noticed in Luke's gospel, if you've been following with us, who does Jesus say ends up sad and who ends up happy? Well, Jesus said, right before this, Jesus met a rich ruler. You remember him? He was nothing but positivity and valued his own goodness. He walked away from Jesus sad. How about the Pharisee who was so thankful that he was so great and listed all these positive things about himself and looked down on the sinful tax collector begging for mercy? Who ended up happy? Who ended up sad there? The sinner begging for mercy ended up happy, ended up in heaven. 
and not the other guy. Jesus has been teaching us that the kingdom of God, it comes not by human goodness, not by human power, but to those who see they have nothing to contribute, to those who see their own weakness. In Luke 16, it was a poor man who's lying on a doorstep being licked by dogs. In Luke 17, it's an outcast Samaritan leper. In Luke 18, it's a persistent widow, little babies with poopy pants who can't even get to Jesus. But the disciples remain baffled by Jesus' interpretation of the kingdom of God. They can't see it. Do you see what Jesus is telling us, friends? You have to get to the point where you see you have nothing and admit, I am a beggar. You have to get to the point where you see, I'm just blind to how this works out. You have to get to the point where you are recognized that you are a blind beggar in need of mercy. And ah, look what we have here. Verse 35. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. A blind beggar. Luke follows up the scene with the disciples' blindness with the story of a blind beggar who sees his need for mercy. Luke taught us that a blind man can teach us how to see long before Aerosmith's hit song, right? This is helpful for me. This was helpful for me this week to ponder because I'm not prone to think that the fellow I see on that park bench over there at least once or twice a week I don't tend to think that he has advantages that I don't have. Much less would I see he advantages over me if he was actually blind to. How about those people we pass? We tend to think they have advantages. We don't. The blind do have advantages. How many of you heard of Fanny Crosby? Quite a few hands. Fanny is one of the greatest Christian hymn writers, and she was blind her whole life. Over 8,000 hymns, 100 million copies. Oh, and I'll add, she memorized the Pentateuch. <laughs> she was so great that she had to use pseudonyms, false names, fictitious names, so that the hymn book publishers would not be accused of appearing biased. She glorified God in amazing ways, and her blindness was zero hindrance to her. Some well-meaning soul once went up to Fanny and said, Oh, I know you wish that you could see. I'm so sorry for you. They were wrong. You know what she said? It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank him for this dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things around me. That made me think about how our ability to see can actually hinder our ability to hear. Sermon for another day is how we've moved from being a word culture to a visual culture, an image culture. I've actually heard that blind folks have like a heightened sense of hearing. That seems to be the difference between the disciples and the blind beggar. Look at verses 36 to 38. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you see what he sees that the disciples don't? He says, what do I hear going on? They say, 
Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And look what he says. Not, Jesus of Nazareth have mercy. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. David, you know that Old Testament prophet? The old king who God prophesied would one day have a son who would reign on his throne forever? This blind beggar sees Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. Apparently, he has heard about Jesus and all that he's been doing. And like Fanny, he must know his Old Testament because he's put two and two together and becomes the only guy in Luke's gospel who makes this connection. Now, whoever's in the front of this crowd, you would think, wow, how'd you? No, they're not impressed at all. They say, we have shut it. You're ruining our victory march here. They're annoyed. Those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me! Why are they annoyed? Because they're on the march to Jerusalem with their champion Jesus. And this blind beggar, is he going to be any help to the cause? No. He's only going to slow Jesus down. This is like earlier, right? When the disciples were trying to shoo the babies away. They have nothing to contribute. And so this blind man says, I'm sorry, guys. Sorry for ruining the parade. I didn't mean to. No. He says, now or never. This is my only chance. Jesus may never pass me by again. And he's happy to share with the whole world his need for mercy. He cares not what anybody thinks like that persistent widow. He starts playing that one string he has again and again and again. By the way, that scene ended with Jesus asking about whether he would find faith on the earth. This guy doubles down and begins to shout at the top of his lungs, Son of David, have mercy on me. The question I want you guys to ask yourself when you leave here, have you ever felt this sort of need? To shout out to Jesus this way. Your need and my need is every bit as great as this blind beggar's. Do we see our need for mercy? Do we ever pray to Jesus like this? Do we ever call out admitting all that's wrong with us? Blind Fanny Crosby once wrote, and this may be our most popular hymn, Pass me not. O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Let me at thy throne of mercy find a sweet relief, kneeling there in deep contrition, help my unbelief. Trusting only in thy merit would I seek thy face. Heal my wounded, broken spirit. Save me by thy grace. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Have you ever felt your need this acutely for gentle Jesus? If you haven't, today is the day of salvation. Jesus may never pass you by again. It's hard for the rich to enter heaven but not for those who admit they are poor and in need. Friends, the good news, the good news that we see is that Jesus stops 
when someone calls out and sees their utter need for mercy. Verse 40, And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. Don't miss that Jesus commanded the ones telling the poor man to shut it. said, Hey, you bring him near and you do it with a smile. Jesus says, I want to see that fellow. Bring him here. There are many happy moments in this ancient book that I've been privileged to read more than once. But there are few that would exceed the joy of this blind beggar. As he goes from screaming, begging, pleading for mercy as a hostile crowd shouting him to shut up and then to hear it feel that tap on the shoulder. Hey, Jesus wants to see you. Can you imagine? What joy to be led to Jesus. Here he's calling for you and then to hear these gentle words. What do you want me to do for you? I love this. Jesus knew what he wanted. You know what he's doing? He's giving this man his dignity back. Letting this man own his condition. Admit his need. This is the first step towards his fuller restoration. And this man trusts his loving Lord, wants to heal him. And he says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Imagine the twelve the blind 12 who are hearing this question and witness this final miracle before they enter into Jerusalem. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well or your faith has saved you. Do you see my dear friends? Jesus, he wants us to see. He wants us to see him more clearly. And our faith, our putting our full trust in him, it's the means to our healing. It's not the size of our faith. It's our Savior who heals us. Faith is the instrument that allows a Savior to bring the full healing. And he is the only one who can open the eyes of the blind. Verse 43, And he immediately recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus, friends, has the power to do the impossible, to open the eyes of a blind man, to restore the fallen. And notice what this man does. He becomes a disciple. This is step one to discipleship. Our confession, we have a catechism question that talks about what is repentance unto life? It's a saving grace where you understand your absolute need, your poverty, but you also at the same time take in grace, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. This man gets it and he follows Jesus just like the 12 did, just like many of us have done so that we might give God all the glory for all our days here on earth and for eternity in a greater joy and glory where there are pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. I want to close with saying I long to see this happen more often. We're often here. When a person gives their life to Jesus, it's not just for their good. It it can light a place on fire. Do you see this crowd? Luke hasn't actually used this word for crowd since the beginning of the gospel. It's referring to the vast multitude. 
that join in the joy of witnessing the eyes of the blind being opened, witnessing salvation coming. Would you like to see embers stoked to flames at Heart City Church as souls are restored so that they can glorify God, fulfill their purpose? Let me ask you, is there someone that you often pass by who's coming to your mind right now? Do you hear Jesus commanding you to bring that person to himself? When's the last time you said to someone, hey, tapped him on the shoulder, Jesus wants to see you. What joy that would be to bring a suffering soul to hear the gentle groom wants to see them. I said there were few greater joys in the Bible than when the blind beggar heard that Jesus wanted him to come near, to draw near. So, Pastor Joel, what other joys might you say would be greater? (laughs) Actually, it occurred in the same scene. What could be a greater joy than hearing that Jesus Christ wanted to see you? The greater joy, my friends, is suddenly being given eyes to behold him for the very first time. That's the greater joy. Blind Fanny Crosby once wrote this, and this is so good. I love this quote. She wrote, If at my birth I had been able to make one petition to my creator, it would have been that I should be made blind. (laughs) Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. My friends, this is the greater joy. Having that veil lifted, to see your loving bridegroom face to face and discovering the marvelously good that has passed you by most of your life. And it awaits all who cry out to him for mercy. Friends, do you see your need? Let me lead us in prayer. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, Do not pass me by. Gracious God and Father, I deserve nothing. I have earned nothing, and all I can bring is my sin and my need. Have mercy on me. I thank you for bringing me here today to hear of the Son you sent to atone for all my sins. And I ask you to forgive me of it all and to never hold it to my account on that day of judgment. Please send the spirit of revelation to enlighten the eyes of my heart and more and more that I might better live each day forward to glorify you. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.